Good morning. Delighted to be here to join all of you on our journey this week to enjoy a good time with family and always good food and fellowship and fun and to feast on the Word and looking forward to leading you through, leading us together through some portions of God's Word that I trust will be profitable to you. Sandy's with me uh, today until she needs to head back home to Ankeny this afternoon. She's in her fourth year serving as the Dean of Women at Faith Baptist Bible College, and so this is a big week of preparation for students coming back, and we get to have school at Faith this year. That really wasn't for certain as we had the students head home last, last spring, but God has allowed us to have a governor who wants us to have camp and wants us to have school, and so she's heading back to get ready for Ari's coming in, and I will miss her this week. I know. Tell our kids, buck up, buttercup, so that's going to have to do that. <laughs> yes. We don't often have to do that, and so we can do a lot together, and we we're glad for that, and so uh, we are trusting God to give us both a good week of ministry. So we're delighted to be here. It's good to be with Stephen and Ellen Moore, good friend for a long time, pastored in our area, and Carol when we were there, and uh, we love you and love your family. We even love your dad. We, <laughs> we, we, we always loved your mom, but... Um, um, yeah, and always love your dad, yeah, love your family. Love it when uh, Bethany comes to stay at our house from time to time. We're kind of a retreat away from home. We always enjoy her coming to join us. Um, when I passed in South Des Moines, um, not quite 400 years ago, but it was in the 1980s, had just been saved, went to Bible college, and pastoring our first church in South Des Moines. Um, two men in our church owned private airplanes. One had been a Former B-17 bomber pilot when he was 19 years old. Yeah, they had to grow up pretty fast. And another guy was a business owner, and he had a, a Cessna that, we, that had avionics or electronics that were the envy of the Iowa State Patrol. They wished they had his. So one day, um, he said to me, hey, let's go see Mickey. And I said, sounds great. So he hopped in his plane, went to the Des Moines airport, and flew to Sully, Iowa, because that's where they have a good cafe for breakfast. We did a little mini fly-in, had breakfast, and took off for northern Iowa. And he, he turned his dial on the avionics, and it literally said Mickey. He plugged it in like you do an AM radio. You hit the buttons, and it said Mickey. The year was 1988. Mickey, what, Mickey Mouse is the Mickey I'm referring to, not Mickey Mantle. And Mickey Mouse had been invented in the year 1928. So this was Mickey's 60th birthday. In honor of that, one of the, one of the Disney executives had, was making a flight between Anaheim and Orlando and was flying over Texas and noticed some of the uh, agricultural irrigation crop circles. And three of them kind of looked like Mickey with the two ears and the face. He said, we ought to do that in honor of Mickey. So he asked some of the people that knew about people traveling, he said, what is the most frequent route over flyover country? That's where we live. And we're proud of that, right? We live in flyover country. And he said, well, northern Iowa, southern Minnesota, between Chicago, New York, and, and San Francisco, is the greatest at 35,000 feet we could create a Mickey. And so they contracted with a farmer, a couple of them, uh, actually in Saragordo County, east of Sheffield, in 1988, and they planted 
corn and oats in the shape of Mickey's profiles. With 35,000 feet, you could see Mickey. So he plugged in Mickey and off we went. And we flew and he just turned the button and the plane turned and turned the button and the plane turned and went back and he said, there he is. And I looked really hard and couldn't see him. Now, we weren't 35,000 feet, we were like 1,500 feet. So I looked, oh, there's the nose, oh, there's the ears, had to pull back. And I wished I had a higher perspective to catch all that I was missing at that elevation. My point is, sometimes we just need a higher perspective, God's perspective, to see what he's doing through adversity. Got to get up a little bit higher and get God's perspective. So I want you to take your copy of God's Word this morning, and we're going to be in the book of James, chapter 1, verses 1 through 12, uh, and that will be our text this morning. When I say take your Bibles, I don't say that lightly. I remember going to church where you did not bring Bibles. Sandy and I were saved at the age of 28 and 26, respectively. We were very good in our own estimation. Um, generational Lutherans, never heard the gospel, we had a moral conscience to some degree, loved being in church, loved singing at church, met at church, got married in a church, uh, but we weren't saved, we'd never heard the gospel. Then as God was working in our heart, to make a long story short, we were invited to go to a Baptist church in Ketchikan, Alaska, building a hydroelectric power plant, and we showed up and they had their own copies of their Bibles. And we said, wow, all we'd ever seen was this huge pulpit Bible because no one bought Bibles to church where we went to church ever since we were born. And God was working in our hearts to, to draw us to himself, and we said, this has to be real. And the people had their Bibles, and, and they sang like they meant it, and their Bibles looked like they'd actually been reading them. They were marked up in yellow, had fingerprint oil. This was new to us, so never take that for granted. I remember not having a Bible to read. So take your Bible with me this morning to James chapter 1. As we take our journey through this text this morning to get God's perspective. How he have us to respond to adversity, difficulties, and testing. Let's see what he says. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes of the dispersion or scattered greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet or fall into various kinds of trials. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness or endurance have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If, any, if you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, nothing doubting, for the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person was not supposed that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man and stable in all of his ways. And let the lowly brother boast in his exultation and let the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. And all the flower falls and its beauty perishes. And so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast or endures under trial for the, he has stood the test, received the crown of life which God has pre-promised to those who love him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for your word. We thank you for your son. Father, we thank you for your spirit who 
convicts us, teaches us, gives us understanding. So we look to the Word today. Lord, uh, help us to be hearers and then doers of the Word, to honor our Savior, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You should have a copy of notes in your possession this morning, your booklet. And if you look at the text today, let's look at a few key words in the first verse to understand really what James is telling us. But before they do a little bit of introduction, James identifies himself as a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's his identity. He was a brother of the Lord, but he identifies himself as a servant or a bond slave where Jesus is his master. And so everything he writes, entire life, is dedicated to the one who is bought and paid for his salvation. He's writing to those that have been scattered abroad throughout Asia Minor, and it makes sense that James would write to them because he had been their leader in Jerusalem before they were scattered. So these scattered believers are still on his heart to help them. Uh, They were scattered because of persecution and still facing it. So he, out of concern for them, driven by the Spirit of God, he writes how they could respond and get God's perspective on adversity. Some words. He says, count it all joy. The word joy... um, is an interesting word. It means gladness. It's spoken of the birth of Christ. It means to be cheerful, to be calmly happy, to be, uh, to be well off, to have calm delight, or cheerfulness is the word joy. Uh, the word count is another interesting word. It's sometimes translated chief, ruler, governor, or leader. The root word means to lead or to be, in a sense, to, to, to lead something before the mind with authority. So this, beyond an emotional response, is to lead something before the mind and reach a settled conviction that this is how I'm going to respond. So to count means to weigh it, to lead it, to think about it, to lead it before the mind, have a settled conviction that this is how I'm going to respond to these things. The word, the next word, is the word fall. And the, the ESV says meet, but a better word is fall. It means to fall into something. It means to be immersed into something, to light upon something and just find yourself like being immersed like those that came in from the rain found themselves in a storm. I think through no fault of their own would be my guess. Uh, Choices we make have consequences and so either good or bad choices can lead to us falling into or finding ourselves in a time of adversity, like finding yourself in a storm. It means to be immersed into something, surrounded by it, as like falling into a lake and being immersed in the water. And so that's, it's like they fell among thieves, or, or Paul, when they're on their shipwreck, he said, we, we, happened to, we happened to fall where two seas met on a sandbar, and the ship buckled, and we made ourselves to shore. And so sometimes we find ourselves having fallen into something to some degree not anticipated either type or in time. We just find ourselves. It's like Ruth, her hap was the light in the field of Boaz. She sought for a piece of property and she happened to find herself there. And so this is the word fall, to be surrounded by, to be immersed into, we're, it's, we're all around it. And the next word is trial or testing. We count it joy when we find ourselves in various kinds of temptations. A better word is testing. And the root word means to put to the test, to pierce to see if it's true. It's like the old westerns had uh, the place where you sold your gold when you dug it up in your, in your claim. 
went to the assay office and had it tested, and sometimes in a crucible, they would boil it and all the impurities and cow to see if it's fool gold to see if it's real. Something that's put to the test and implies that there is some adversity involved, some pressure involved, and various kinds of trials could be internal, could be external, it could be of various types that God allows or chooses for us to be immersed into. It's not a solicitation to evil, it's not an enticement to do wrong, it's a test with adversity to prove and to show what, what we really are made of. And so those are some of the key words walking into our text. So with that in mind, let's look into how would God have us respond to adversity? What is his perspective? First of all, we need to rejoice in this spiritual challenge. Now, if you're like me, that would not be my instinctive response to difficulty. My, my instinctive response or the old age response would be, oh man, or frustration, or sorrow, or anger, resentment, bitterness, finding someone to blame, or pouting. We don't pout, do we? Um, I've not learned all this yet, by the way. I think I'm doing better than I was 20 years ago. I hope like John Newton, I'm not what I ought to be, but maybe not what I used to be. But I struggle with this. This really? Considered to be cheerful? This is the response? Um, Our kids could tell you stories when dad didn't respond best to times of adversity. Could be, why are you smiling over there? Huh? (laughs) Uh, I remember a handful of them, and it could be as simple as having the, the rear door of your minivan open and backing it into a cabin at Silver Dollar City and bending the corner and pouting the rest of the trip. That might have happened. <laughs> now, now you're laughing, so. <laughs> and that's a true story. That's one of many. And so we look at this, really, this is the response? And yes, this is God's response. Um, I want to, as we think about these challenges, first of all, we are not exempt from trials. When you and I came to Christ, there was not some kind of a bubble wrap that exempted us from difficulties and trials in life. It isn't that way. Uh, and so we should expect them. The text says when you fall into them. And that implies they're going to happen. You need to expect that it's going to be. We may not know when, but we need to expect that God's going to bring testing through decisions that we make, through God's providence, he brings them into our life. They're also unexpected in the sense that we fall into them and find ourselves immersed into them. So they kind of meet us unexpected, like March with this COVID thing. That was completely unexpected. And now we're immersed into it, the entire world, driven by what to do with this thing. They come in a variety of forms. We talk about various kinds of testings. But this is an exhortation that's something that God wants us to do. He wants us to respond by, re- by cons- counting it to be a cheerful thing, to think about it, to lead it before the mind, to make a settled conviction, not just the emotions of anger and frustration even overwhelming sorrow and grief. And, and you all know that hard things can be various sources of grief, and legitimately so. Uh, Dr. Newman does a great job of walking us through the book of Psalms, of expressing grief 
to our loving Father and walking through the tears and walking through the grief and coming out the other side of having trusted God to lead me through this. And that's an okay reaction to times of difficulty, but God walks us through here that he wants to, to rejoice in this spiritual challenge. Well, how do we do that? Well, secondly, what else does God want us to do? How can we do that? Well, we have to remember that God uses trials to grow us. So he goes on to tell us this is why you can do this. This is how it can happen. It doesn't make sense, but it is biblical. How? Because The word for means because. So how can I respond with rejoicing and cheerfulness in the midst of anxiety? He says, because you know the testing of your faith produced endurance. So look at, let's look at those phrases. He says, for you know. And the word know here isn't facts. It's experiential knowledge learned over time. I think it almost implies that they already knew this and had forgotten it because you know. This wasn't something new to them. In fact, a lot of what we hear in preaching is reminded of things that we already know. And we've forgotten them. It says, for you know. You know by experience in walking with God that this is true. You know that these things lead to endurance as he tests our faith. Now, we know this to be true in physical exercise. How do you become stronger? Well, you stretch your muscles, and as you do, they become stronger. And Sandy and I turkey hunt together, and uh, not so much in the fall anymore. We go out in the spring and the fall, we used to, and at the beginning of turkey season, we hunt along the Raccoon River east of Carroll, and we go down the river bottom and up in the river bottom with a pack and a gun, and hopefully a turkey on the way out. I usually carry the turkey, which is fine, and then I clean it and she cooks it. And the first time out in the seat, we're huffing and puffing and our legs are sore, we can't get our breath, and we don't have much endurance. But by the end of the season, we're up and down, not quite running, but we say, that really felt pretty good. And so we know that the strength training applies to physical endurance. We, that's why we go to the gym. That's why you have two-a-days in football practice. It's why you, 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 we know that that's how that works. We have to apply that to spiritual things. We know this to be true, that God strengthens us by testing us. We just know that to be true. We know. So also the testing of your faith. And this is not to entice us to evil, but the testing to prove and to build and and, and create awareness, and he's testing how much we trust him. He's testing our confidence in him. Can we trust him through this? And so God is testing our faith, and that produces endurance. And so a loving God has a plan for our becoming stronger. And it probably wouldn't be our plan, like, how do I get Joseph to be second only to Pharaoh? Hmm, how about... Sold to slavery by his brothers, forgotten in prison, slandered. That's a great plan. And we would go, mm. how do I get Job to elevate his concept of me? Hmm. How about if I allow, allow the devil to touch him and his family to be killed and lose all of his wealth and lose his health? That was his plan. But Job responded, what God what we meant for evil, God meant for good. And so God's purpose, we see purpose in adversity, as hard as it is. 
A loving God uses that to strengthen us, make us stronger in our faith and confidence in Him. And we know this to be true. When we lived in Ketchikan, Alaska, I was a civil engineer building a hydro plant at a remote job. So we initially lived in town. I commuted by float plane every morning to work and back again in the evening. We kind of waved hi to the cruise ships in the morning, and they would, they would wave back. And we flew by float plane. Now, they fly by sight. There's no tower. You take off in the morning, you're trusting the pilot to use his judgment because no one's, no one's telling him, you can't fly today. The air taxi we flew with was the only one that never crashed into a mountain the whole time that we were there. Others did. And they fly into a fog, and planes can't turn around quick, if you know about planes. And they crash into mountains and fall into lakes, and ours never did. One of them, his name was Max. Max Lucan. He was probably, probably in his 40s. He's an old man when I was in my young 20s. <laughs> Now 40 isn't so old anymore. Um, he was a seasoned pilot. He, he had had to weather storms that he would rather not have been in, and he knew when not to fly. But if you found yourself in an unexpected storm, you wanted Max at the helm because he had been through the tough stuff. And because of that, he produced endurance by all of that testing. He could handle winds. He could handle Rain. They had horizontal rain in Ketchikan. 180 inches of rain every year, 23 inches just in October alone. So he knew as a seasoned pilot that was, that was in the crucible of flying in weather, he would rather never fly in again. So he learned how to fly. He learned when not to fly. In fact, he was the only one that shut everything down when you shouldn't fly. He says, nope, you don't need to get there. We're not taking off today. And so, so we know that this has purpose in it, and we find great comfort that our God and our Father, who wants us to go stronger in our confidence in Him, uses these things to strengthen us. So we know, we do this knowing by experience that the testing of our faith produces patience and endurance. It's God's strengthening exercises to build our faith. And so we need to rejoice and remember. And, and, and point number three... Uh, the, the text goes on. So let steadfastness, let endurance have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete or complete and entire and whole, lacking in nothing. Now that we're on our journey through our time of adversity and we, we are beginning to find a cheerfulness in it, knowing that God's accomplishing a purpose, there's a temptation to bail before he's done. And, of course, there, it's normal to seek relief. We'll look at that firstly. It's normal to seek relief when we're in adversity. We say, Lord, remove the thorn. And the Apostle Paul did when he came back from the third heaven, has seen things no man had seen. To keep him humble, God gave him a thorn in the flesh. And, God, and Paul prayed three times that God would remove this thorn in the flesh for him. So it was okay. He said, Lord, just remove the burden. Just give me some relief, like hot weather and a drought. We want cool weather and rain. I don't function well in hot weather or humidity, so I'm welcoming a little bit cooler weather. And so it's okay to seek relief, but it's also easy to bail too soon and fail to receive the entire lesson before it's done. How many times have you bail before something was done because it was tough. 
Uh, I, I deer hunted years ago with Pastor Doug Farrell, and we were in southern Iowa, and uh, he put me up in a tree. I was okay. No tree stand, just a tree. We, we didn't have money to buy trees, and we just stood up in trees. And so I sat there and sat there. It wasn't all that cold. And uh, God tired us for time to get down. The moment I got down, a deer, a big buck, came up across the field, stood under the very tree I was in, and, and, and just stood there. And I thought, I bailed too soon. And so how many times have we said, Lord, just end it? It's all I can take. And we know that God gives us grace to... To, walk, to bear up during times of adversity. He gives us the strength to do it, but we're tempted to bail too soon before God's done teaching us all he wants us to teach us. One commentator said that endurance is a virtue which very few people experience fully. Too often we grasp relief from trouble so eagerly that we fail to receive the entire lesson that God intended for us. He says, so let, let God finish what he is doing. Allow it to have its full effect. Let God finish what he's starting. And as Pastor Phil was sharing this morning about, about James, and as a dad and a mom walking through all of that, and watching God work and bring reproof and correction, as a mom and a dad walking your son through all of this, and a wise friend said, what has God taught you through this? was a good question. What is the lesson God wants you to learn? in it? Because his purpose is to, in, is to have endurance. But God has lessons he wants us to learn. And so let God finish what he is doing. Let it have its full effect. Don't bail too quickly and let God finish what he has started. That's what we need to do to not bail too quickly on this. Number four, we need to ask God for wisdom. And, and, and we would expect that somewhere along the line that God would talk about praying. Uh, we often pray in adversity when we haven't been praying before. It's amazing how that sense of need drives us to our knees because we sense we need God's help. So th th this would be expected. He says, in the midst of this, as you count it to be joy and as you Remember, you know what God is doing, and as you, as you let him finish what he started, along the way, you want to make sense of this. And so it's interesting, I think, what James tells us to pray about. He says to ask God for wisdom. And I think this implies the need for clarity. Then, and, and, of course, this is a verse that many of us learn early on in our Christian life, that God is wisdom, we ask him for wisdom. And every decision that we make, big or small, we want wisdom from God, and we've had a lot of that during the last several months in our church and in life, how to respond to this pandemic. What does ministry look like? What, what do you do in a church when someone wants to shut the church down and someone says we need to keep it open no matter what? What's a pastor do? Hypothetical, of course. <laughs> Same church. Kill grandma or let's... Buck the government. I mean, I, I, as, seriously. And good men have said, I got raked over the coals today by people in our church for either starting too soon or waiting too long. These are good and godly men. And so they are praying for wisdom to navigate what ministry looks like in unprecedented times. 
as a fellowship. What do we do? What does ministry look like? And so we're driven to our knees. And so we use this for every occasion to need wisdom. But I want you to see the context of this. I, I, I love those aha moments when a verse makes sense in its setting. Well, what did James intend here? He, he wasn't talking about wisdom for anything in general, specifically, though I think it's okay to do that. He said, during trials, you need to say, Lord, what are you doing? What lessons are you teaching me? What do you want me to learn? What purpose do you have for me as I'm staying in my hospital bed longer than I had planned to? Why do you have me here? And maybe God says, because there's someone there you need to witness to. I'm leaving there till, till you do. So in the midst of adversity, we ask God for wisdom, specifically how to make sense and have clarity as to what he's doing, leaving you there. Some of you may know Randy Patton. He was a former Indiana State rep, um, uh, a big leader in the uh, Nathetic Counseling Movement. And um, he, d- he did a workshop on uh, how to call a pastor, and I use it and tweak it a little bit. And um, he tells pulpit committees that this time of looking for pastors is like a trial. It's a test. And he brings them here to get God's perspective on, and it's a tricky transition from walking through from a pastor retiring or resigning to calling a new pastor, and there's not a real good roadmap in the Bible how to do this. You have to seek his wisdom. He says, and he brings him to this text to rejoice in this, to find purpose in this, to, to let God finish what he's doing. And on that point alone, he says, you know, as you ask for wisdom, God will give you passion when you learn everything he wants to teach you. Then he'll give you one. Wow. And normally they want one yesterday. They want one the next week the pastor resigns. And God may say, nope, I have a lot I want to teach you. I'll give you one when you've learned all the things I want you to learn. So we're, we're looking for clarity here. He's in the midst of this, ask God for wisdom. But I think we need humility as well because we are lacking. It's interesting, in the original language, there are no verse divisions, so they run together. And I think if you look at the lack of, last of verse 4, that we might be at one time lacking in nothing, but if we're lacking in wisdom right now, and they kind of run together. And you pretty much realize that you're lacking wisdom to see God's perspective, what he's accomplishing in this time of difficulty. Maybe it could be how you're treated at work. could be financial. could be medical. could be relational. could be occupational. could be my coach isn't fair to me and my, and my teammates are just nasty to me and say, oh, God, well, what does God want you to do? But sensing the need to ask him requires humility. We're lacking something. We're lacking many things, but, but we're lacking wisdom, so there needs to be a sense of humility. Prayer, at its basic level, is a believer talking with his father, but an expression of humility that I'm lacking something and need it from him. So we need humility. We also have to pray in confidence. We seek him. He tells us how to pray. He said, let him ask in faith. And faith is confidence in God and all that he is and all that he does. We pray asking in faith. We have confidence in him. And so we, we need to have confidence in God to pray or he will not answer our prayer. And so what, what, what is God that we have confidence in? Well, from the text we can see that God is the source of wisdom. 
I love reading Proverbs chapter 1 about wisdom personified, and it says, I, the Lord, give wisdom. We seek it from Him. And there's benefit to counselors and other people to invest in to seek their wisdom, but we go first to the source of wisdom because even in Jesus are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So go to Him first and seek it from Him. He is a source of wisdom. We also have confidence that God is a giver. He shares his wisdom with us, and he cries out in Proverbs 1. Public in the street, he cries out. Wisdom just cries out in the street. So he's a giver of wisdom. He's also a generous giver. Uh, the KGB says liberal. The only place it's used in a good sense, I think, is you want to, God is liberal in his giving. He gives generously. And so he gives as a, he's a generous giver. He's an impartial giver. He gives to all men. Not a select few people that give wisdom from God, but God gives impartially. And it says, without reproach. He gives without reproach. Meaning, he doesn't humiliate us when we come. And when kids are little, they ask silly questions. They don't grasp the world they live in yet. We have grandchildren all the way from 2 to 13. And they gradually learn to ask better questions, but sometimes even in Bible college, we ask silly questions. Dr. Myron Houghton was hilarious when he asked a silly question in his class. He's now with the Lord. He came to faith when I did in 1983 from Denver. I had took Christian experience from him. He sat on his, uh, his, on his table with a warm bottle of Diet Coke and a squirt gun. If you asked a dumb question, he'd squirt you. I thought it was hilarious. The freshman had no idea how to take him. I said, this is hilarious. This guy was like seven earned doctorates with a squirt gun? This is hilarious. And they were petrified. I said, just get over it. They were just, I don't want to take this guy. They learn that that's his humor. There are such a thing as silly questions. Avoid foolish questions. And so when we consult God and say, Lord, help me make sense, he's going, really? Is, is it not obvious? He'll never say that. He'll never make fun of us. He'll never humiliate us because we're his children. So never humiliate your children when they come to you or they just won't come anymore. As a preview of our study this week. So God is a good father, gives generously, impartially to all of his children and above what we could ever expect or think. And he'll never humiliate us when he comes and says, that's a stupid question. Why? Don't you get this? He'll never do that. And so we're able to come with all of making sense of this. He's a faithful giver. He gives, it says, and he will give. Are you confident that that's the God that you know? Why would we waver in that? Why would we not trust him in that? And yet sometimes we do. And I have said, Lord, do you know what you're doing here? Haven't we been in this trial long enough? How long does it need to take? Those are hypothetical, right? Do you really care? Do you really know? Do you really see 400 years in slavery, Egypt wondered if God was watching? Every moment he was watching and caring about his people. 
It just wasn't part of the plan to do it yet. He cares. So we are to put our confidence in him. And so James defines it. What is faith? Well, he defines it by what it isn't. It's without doubting, without wavering, without instability. Someone's a double-minded man. And the best teachers tell us something by what it isn't. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 that we're saved by grace through faith. It is not of works and not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. So he tells us what it is and what it isn't. A good teacher always tells us what something isn't to help us know what it is. And then he illustrates it so he can catch a picture of it. And he's a great, every teacher is a good illustrator, right? He says because it's without wavering. Because the one who doubts is like, here's an analogy. What does he say a good teacher does? A good teacher illustrates his point, right, dear? It's like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind for that person would not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded, mind, stable in all those ways. So he defines faith. He warns us of the consequence of not trusting him completely by going back and forth. Can I trust him? Can I not? Can I trust him or not? And you know, people are indecisive. He wants us wholly committed to confidence in him or we'll get nothing from him. It's a conditional promise. And so... We ask God for wisdom, put our confidence in him, all that he is and all that he does, and say, Lord, help me to make sense of it. Help me to be a good steward of this time of adversity. Help me to serve you well in the midst of it till you've decided it's done. That's hard, but God gives grace for that. That's his perspective on how to do this, to get to ask for wisdom. And, and then come several verses that I always used to just skip because they didn't think they made sense in the text. You ever done that? Kind of you get the flow of the text and you kind of get the theme. You get this, huh? You go, oh, I'll just skip it and pick up where I left off, like passing someone in traffic. And, and, and I read these verses. It said, the lowly brother can boast in his exultation, the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he'll pass away. Because the sun rises as with a scorching heat and withers the grass, the flower falls, the beauty falls, perishes. So also the rich man fade away and miss it. What in the world is that doing there? If I just do it, everyone, just skip it. Commentators do that. Every one of the toughers, get with it, they just, they just cower and skip it. <laughs> Except Kyle and Dalish, they catch everything. <laughs> and so I, I, I need to make sense of it. I think I understand the point that James is making here. We need to rejoice in spiritual realities and not earthly, temporal circumstances. So he gives us, because adversity affects every person in every station in life, he talks about the lowly and the rich. Now, within the body of Christ, within any church, are people that are different. I'm, I'm glad that we're different. Different personalities, different ages, uh, different station in life, different economic uh, status. He says there are the lowly and the rich. And they face adversity saying, what should their focus be regardless of their temporal life? What should be the focus of their thinking when God tests them, regardless if they have much or they have little? He said, well, I think that's the purpose of this, to focus on spiritual realities, not earthly temporal things, like how much money you have or you don't. He said the lowly man should boast in his exaltation. Now, the word boast means boast. 
It, it is translated rejoice, but that kind of weakens it. It means to vaunt yourself like, oh, you know, whoa, it's a big deal. Look at this. It's to glory in something and make a big deal and say, whoa, that's what it means. Can I do that? That's what it, 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 it's, rejoice doesn't catch the sense of the word. It means you go, wow, look at this. It can be used in a bad sense or a good sense. Here's used in a good sense to, to be completely pumped up about something even though I'm poor. Because God made me one of his children and at the cross exalted me to, be a, to serve with the king. I know seated in the heavenlies and one day this world's going to be over. I know the king of kings and lord of lords. I'm seated with him. I'm the brother and the friend of my savior. He was exalted at the cross. He boasts in that though he has nothing. And then the rich, who admonish to be rich in good works, to care for those that are employed by them. What about the rich that has everything he needs in this life? But those things are temporal. They could be gone in a moment. Remember the book of Job? How quickly his life changed. Probably the wealthiest man on the planet, and now he was brought to nothing. Everything was gone. Everything was gone. So they rejoice not in their riches, but in their humiliation, how God humbled them at the cross, brought them to their knees, put their trust in Christ, and their relationship with him will outlast everything they own in this world. So instead of focusing on what you have and what you don't have, those are temporary. And the, and the, the analogy shows that is the flower of the grass passes away. The things of this word are temporary. They're not permanent. Eternal realities are what I focus on in the midst of adversity. It's amazing how tough times shape our focus about really, really is important. What do we boast in when, our, when those things are gone? Well, what do we go, whoa, I have Jesus, and I, and, and I don't have a home anymore, and that's sad, but I have him. And so the lowly man has been exalted. The rich man has been humbled at the cross to, to, to jointly boast and pump their chests that they have something of eternal value that no one can ever take away. And adversity sharpens our focus in that. But God takes something away that you valued in this life. We take a trip to Door County, Wisconsin. Anyone know where Door County, Wisconsin is? Beautiful place. The Door Peninsula above Green Bay separates the Bay of Green Bay from Lake Michigan. We go there the middle two weeks of July every year to camp with our camper. And we had our, so we arrived there on a Monday afternoon, set up our camper. Our daughter, Amy, her husband, Christopher, arrived later that afternoon with her tent. Uh, and their two kids, Addie and Finn, they were almost one and three and a half. And so we had our camper set up, and so to help them get their tent set up, which was new, uh, Sandy went with the two other grandkids to watch them play at the big, huge sandbox, like 100 feet across. Setting up the tent, Sandy comes back, and she didn't, she's a happy person. And she was sad. And she said, my diamond is missing. We'd had it reset 20 years ago because the prongs were wearing, put six on instead of five. And 43 and a half years of marriage just came flashing across all that that ring had gone to. He said, I don't know where it is. I don't know what happened. I have no idea. And of course, there was sand everywhere. 
their beautiful campsite with like crushed chip gravel. Everything looks like a diamond. <laughs> we said, maybe we'll get a flashlight, but everything sparkles because it's kind of granite. And we said, oh, we, we just so, we, we hugged and we cried over the loss of that. I remember buying it. I remember purchasing it and all that it's been through. She said, I said, honey, so I, we hugged and we cried and consoled because that was a loss. There's no, there's no fault in that. And, and, and then we tried to put things in perspective and say, you know, honey, our kids are walking with the Lord. No one can take away 43 years of marriage and we got saved later in life. God given us meaningful ministries. None of that's taken away by the missing stone. And she said, that helped me get perspective. Those, those were temporal. And that's what he's talking about here. What do we boast in? We boast in not temporal thing, but eternal realities that no one can ever take away. Long story short, God found the diamond. <laughs> we, we happened to go to the slide out and, of our camper and opened it up and and uh, we walked over there to get something that was in the little compartment, and underneath it were some uh, Rubbermaid tubs on some, some black rubber mass that I never put under there, but just happened to do that. And she said, look! I thought she meant a snake. <laughs> you know, it's dark. I'm thinking salamander. Why did that come to mind? Salamander, you know, snake. I'm going, oh, she said, no, look! And right there on the edge of the, on the top of the mat was that stone staring at us. It had fallen three feet and bounced on the mat and stayed there. That was, that was amazing. And so after we had hugged before and we, we, we prayed together that God, if, if it be his will, to help us find it. Knowing that he, that may not be his will and be content with that. And so we prayed and prayed with our grandkids. And to this day, we talked to Addie a three-and-a-half-year-olds, and what we do in Gore County? Well, oh, we, we, we fed the goats, you know, and then we, uh, we played with the rocks at the beach, and, and God found Grammy's diamond. And she was watching. And Santa said, it's really important how we respond to this loss. Our grandkids are watching. So we rejoice in spiritual realities, not earthly circumstances. The lowly brother results in his exalting the rich in humiliation, and so we share the boasting that we have these that nothing can take away. And I'll finish with this. We have to love and trust God through this. Now he wraps in, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he receives a crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Blessed means happy. Happy is the man that bears up under trial and learns what God wants, and now he's stronger. He is a happy man. Steadfast is the same word you find in verse 2, a cheerful endurance, that if, we, that if we hang in there by the grace of God and bear up under it until God is done, God blesses us with happiness. But also the crown of life are given to those who love and trust, to love him. And the crown of life, here's one where the commentators don't agree, and that can happen sometimes. What is the crown of life? Some say it's something at the Bema seat, uh, that, that a different kind of eternal life 
than those that did not have this crown of life. It could be that. But someone said, maybe it's just life itself, the blessings of life, of having grown stronger, that God is glorified and God uses it and, and, and God blesses and all of that. Maybe it's just life itself in its fullness having been trained to become stronger. And God is glorified in that. And, and God, we grow in that and people are ministering. Maybe it's like Paul in, a Philipp, in, in jail in Philippians chapter 1, verse 12, where he's in, you talk about a lockdown. He's in prison writing an epistle. And so the, 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 the gospel goes out. He said, I want you to know, brothers, that, that the gospel has actually been advanced. And my, and my imprisonment for Christ is gone to the far reaches of the whole Roman Empire, even to Caesar's household. And people have become more bold in the faith to share their faith. And so God is using him in prison. Maybe that was a crown of life, just a life to live to its fullest to the glory of God. But I want to close with this. Interesting, he promises to those who love him. Now, God was testing our faith, right? Why did he say that those who trust him? Now, we are to trust him, and God is testing our faith, and we ask him in faith. But ultimately, what is the greatest of these is love promise of those who love him because if I love him I will trust him that's the primary thing in life so Paul, James goes back to the primary motivation in life which is loving him we love and trust him through this this is God's perspective isn't easy it's not instinctive produced by the spirit as we know these things we can respond biblically to times of adversity we're in one now as a nation in the world. Add to that civil unrest, your own personal burdens, medical issues, financial issues, family issues. Let's respond from God's perspective in a way that honors him and grows us to be stronger in him and love him and trust him through this. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the instruction you give us in your word. And Father, we would admit that we are weak that we're lacking in these things, we're lacking endurance, we're lacking wisdom, we just seek them from you. So Father, pray for everyone here that even at this time is going through a difficult time in their life, that they would get your perspective on this, that you would walk them through this and, and strengthen them and use them for your glory. Help us to be doers and not hearers of the word only. In Jesus' name, amen.